Welcome to episode number 50 of the Bearded Marketers podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. We've hit, that's right, that's the big 5-0. We've made it it so far. Um, We just want to thank everybody who's taken the time to listen, uh, write a review on iTunes, subscribe. But most of all, for all those people who have told someone else about us, we thank you. We do it all for you. (laughs) Exactly. So to help celebrate and ring in the next 50, actually more like probably another 500 episodes that we're going to do eventually one day, we have a little bit of bubbly to pop and I'm going to try to bomb this on the show without spilling it all over our electronic equipment. So (laughs) wish me luck. Oh, and it didn't spill everywhere. Excellent. All right. So while I pour some of this bubbly out for us, walk us through what are we talking about for tonight? What's the lineup? So before we get started tonight, give us a call 904-270-9603. If you have a topic to suggest, maybe something that you've been struggling with for a while, just something you'd like to know a little bit more about, or you can check us out at thebeardmarkers.com. We have a contact us form there as well, where you can drop us a suggestion. So actually our first topic tonight is one that George, I believe, submitted to us and wanted to know a little bit more about engagement ads with Google and how we would potentially go about using those and or measuring. The next topic we're going to be talking about is SEO without links. What does the landscape of SEO look like in the future and how do links play into that? Rethinking purchase flows. So last week we spent a good time about checkouts and our thoughts on that. We're going to continue that discussion, but also parlaying that into what lead gen folks could also take into account as well. Also, it wouldn't be an episode without Google Corner. So we're going to be talking about actually a new Google results page design that's been rolling out and quite a few people have been noticing. It has some interesting implications. And lastly, think with Google and we'll go over that product at the end. And I think it could really help some of you make the case for certain projects or just be a great addition to some of your presentations. So Professor Rob, kick us off engagement ads. What does that even mean? All right. So Actually, before we get into the, the topics, I did want to mention one more thing. This is also episode 50. So not only are we drinking champagne, we have new microphones. We have new equipment set up for this one. So if things sound a little better, hopefully they sound better, please let us know. If things sound off, though, for you, also hit us up at thebeardmarkers.com slash contact. Still we, playing around with them a bit. Yeah we, yeah, we want to hear about what you think. How do the levels sound? How does everything else sound? So let us know if things sound off. All right, so let's get into it. Google's engagement ads. This is something that I think mostly applies to a lot of the big brands out there. So if you're a smaller advertiser, you may not be fully aware of what's possible with Google's partnership with DoubleClick now that they own them. There's a lot of things you can do with ads, things that like flash out, slide out, pop up, slide, uh, all sorts of really interesting things you can do with ads that aren't just the basic flash banner ad or text link that you can usually do in the Google content network. So I think some of the most popular ones, ones that you've probably seen around on the web, are either ones where you can click to play a video and it sort of pops up into a nice new modal window and you can watch the video inside there. That's a common one I think I've seen many places. Another one, though, is the ability to to sort of embed a bunch of e-commerce products inside an ad. So maybe inside the actual banner itself, you can rotate through some e-commerce products or, you know, again, it does the sort of modal window that you can then roll through some categories and and see what that company has to offer. Oftentimes, maybe linked through remarketing or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Which I think they've actually taken a page out of AdRoll's book because they were actually really known for a lot of the remarketing e-commerce based solutions out there. So those are some of the offerings that are out there for the engagement ads. The question though from, what is it, George, uh, George. specifically, how do we measure 
performance between engagement ads versus traditional ads? Because obviously with traditional click ads, most people are doing performance basis, right? So they're measuring the clicks, they're measuring conversions from that. How much revenue am I making? Maybe they're assigning a dollar amount to leads if they're doing lead capture. So it's all about directly how much money am I making from every uh, click that I'm paying for. With engagement ads, on the other hand, though, it's not about necessarily performance for a lot of brands. Um, A lot of the companies I've seen do this are like car brands and companies that are just really trying to get their logo, their company name out in front of your face. Long tail. Right, exactly. They're looking purely for engagement, not necessarily purchases or even clicks, although clicks are a form of engagement, obviously. So how do we measure some of those things if we're gonna do our first foray into engagement ads? If you were to use videos, what are some things you can use? So obviously, how many people clicked play? If I'm going to show videos in front of people's faces, how many people are actually going to try to play them? How far into my video are people getting, right? And with some of that information, you can actually measure that up against, okay, what part in the video is that Mm -hmm. where people are dropping off, where people are sticking through it? If I have call to actions inside that, are people interacting with them in any way? So those are all obvious ways to measure engagement inside video ads. You mentioned a good point, which we've been really scrutinizing in our own videos as of late is looking at where people drop off. So we were noticing with some of our videos that our intros were probably way too long. And because of the stats that we were looking at, we were losing a a good amount of people with some of our videos that had some of the longer intros. So sometimes your advertising information can not only help you with the performance of your ads, but also how do you actually improve your marketing materials themselves? So that might be something to consider as well. Absolutely. And so that sort of covers video ads. The mm-hmm. other end of the spectrum is in our examples. There's obviously there's there's so many. I don't want people to think that maybe it's just limited to the video example we gave and the e-commerce example we gave. There's so many other opportunities right. out there. It's actually a little crazy. We'll tweet out the link on our Twitter account. But there's so many other formats out there. You can do some really creative and crazy things with double clicks mm-hmm. um, integration. So, but for the other one, the example we gave, e-commerce integration. I mean, I think this is right up your alley. How do you measure engagement with that? Clicks, I think, would be a primary thing. Sure. Things like time on site. What kind of clicks are people doing? So, is it on products? Is it on pictures on products? Is it on prices? Is it on category descriptions? All sorts of things like that that you can help try to understand what people are looking for, and how they're trying to engage with you, not just the fact that they are. Right. And another thing to keep in mind as well, depending on how you set your campaign up, is to track click attribution. So depending on what network you run these ads on, uh, particularly Google, even though someone does not necessarily click on an ad, they can still show that as part of their lifetime cycle with being exposed to your marketing messages. So even what you'll find in sometimes when you're advertising, especially in this type of format is this actually might not be a high, and this is an air quotes, converting ad to where people click on it. But what you might find is when you look at your groups of people that have been exposed to your ads the ones that have actually seen these messages do convert higher later on. This is just one of the many touch points through the life cycle of getting them to convert. And you might find that while these branding videos or however you're using this format and just getting in front of people might not necessarily solicit a click or an action directly, but it plants that seed or or continues to water that plant so they eventually convert. So watch your attribution models and see 
if the exposure to some of these engagement ads really does make a difference and keep in mind, it might not be a conversion right then and there, but again, it's talking about planting that seed or watering that plant. So other than looking at your advertising efforts in the long term and maybe not necessarily concentrating on direct conversions through these, these ad formats, also keep in mind looking at how many direct visitors you're also getting to your website. What we find sometimes uh, and it's a little bit easier to quantify if you're running very specific campaigns with specific names. But we do find an influx of people that sometimes arrive to our sites because they've Googled or found us later on. So they've been exposed to this ad and maybe they don't click on it right then and there, which maybe is kind of a knock on how well we've done at convincing them, perhaps. But we do find that in some cases that people do find something interesting. But you got to remember that oftentimes these ads are overlaid on something that they are intending to look at, mm-hmm. you know, that they're trying to pay attention to. And so sometimes we get very caught up in direct conversions, like, did people click my ad? But sometimes it's something that they actually care about, but they want to finish what they were actually meaning to do. And they might check us out later on. So also pay attention to your direct visits or even some of your search traffic on some of the terms. If Again, if you're running very specific campaigns that you're not doing marketing many other places, you might see that some of this advertising traffic does actually come on later on to the site trying to find you based on some of these engagement ads. So I think those are some things to consider with the engagement ads. Like Rob talked about, we're going to tweet out a link for you to check out. There are a ton of different options out there. You might want to consult DoubleClick to see the availability of some of this. So even though they can do a lot, you might not have the ad impressions that you're looking for. So keep that in mind when you're shopping around with some of these placements. But this, particularly for brands that are looking for just kind of brand awareness campaigns or just planting that seed can be really great, but also can be a key part of your remarketing strategy for visitors that have might have already been exposed to you and you want to continue to foster that relationship. Moving right along, one of our favorite topics around here at the Beard Marketers, SEO. So many people stressed out about this. I mean, it must have cost countless sleepless nights for many people around the world. So what do you have for us in the world of links? Well, I think we've talked about SEO recently and sort of some of the takeaways we've left our listeners with is focus on just what matters with having a good experience for visitors, having good content that people want to link at and and enjoy, all of these sorts of things. So uh, keeping in that similar vein, there's actually been some recent, very recent buzz about the value of links and SEO. Um, For the longest time, links were the king. If you had a ton of links pointing to your website, it didn't really matter how great it necessarily was. You always ranked really well. Now there's some shakeups. People are talking about, uh, do links really matter anymore? Does that link from that government website that that used to... That use, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah, that used to make you rank number one. Does that do that anymore, right? Anecdotally, what I've noticed actually over the past few months, you know, it's interesting that I ran into this article, is I've noticed a similar thing. We do a lot of link building for some of our sites, and we've noticed that even though we're picking up a lot of really great links, it's not making much of a difference for our rankings on a few of these sites anymore. Whereas in the past, some of these links would, you know, we're picking up some EDUs here. So, I mean, we we should be ranking really well for a, a wide variety of keywords, but we're not really seeing that anymore. So this is an article from WordStream. They actually talked to a few of the top SEOs in the industry. What are your thoughts on links and SEO? What's the value of them? And how does it compare to what it used to be in the past? So I'm just going to read off a few links or a few quotes from some of the top SEOs, and we can discuss from there. So first off, from the great Aaron Wall from seobook.com. I've been following his blog forever. 
He has this to say, Lynx have been losing weight for about half a decade now due to the folding in of other metrics and increasing algorithmic and manual penalties. So his takeaway is basically, yeah, Lynx don't matter nearly as much as they have for a while now. He says over the past five years, um, mm. I've really noticed it more recently, right. much more recently than that. Uh, here, here's another quote from Ray Hoffman of Sugar Ray fame. You may know this. Okay. It's another blog. Her quote is, I think that Google would love to find a way to make links less of a component in search engine rankings, but I don't see that being truly viable anytime soon. So her take is Google probably wants to be getting away from links. And I would say that there's maybe some evidence of that, but she's thinking that that's probably not going to be any sort of serious concern to be looking for in a while. Yeah, I think what will be interesting with that is how does Google replace links with yeah. some sort of signal of trust. For a long time, links provided them the mark of authority and trustworthiness of sites because that's what they had available to them. I think that they're hoping that maybe some of their other products, things like Google Plus and Gmail and things like that can help them understand what are legitimate sites, what are having velocity, what do they need to actually show in search engine results that mean the most to people because at the end of the day, they want to show that, but also make sure that they're trustworthy because that's going to be a mark of how reliable their results are. So it'll be interesting to see as I'm sure they want to phase links out because it's a kind of an old method and it's one that's been abused so much. It's kind of murky waters. But what will they supplement that with to replace those signals that they were paying attention to so much? There's actually something I read from Matt Cutts recently. I'm actually having trouble locating it before we did the show here, but I read it in the last week or so, which I'll get to in a minute here after one more quote <laughs> from uh, someone else out there. This is the founder of PubCom and Webmaster World, uh, Brett Tabke, mm-hmm. I'm going to go with. Can't, I've never actually heard anyone pronounce his last name. Drop uh, off at the end. Right. So he has this to say. I think it is clear that it has already done that. Google is trying everything they can to devalue the link as a scoring metric. A link from a PR9 page used to mean instant top page rankings under the appropriate keywords. Today, that name link means very little by itself. The value of the link is going to continue to decline. So it's pretty clear what he has to say about it. In in regards to what I read from Matt Cutts, he hinted at Google actually has an algorithm version of Google that does not have any emphasis on links and that he says it's pretty close to being as good as the Google we all know and love. So it'll be really interesting to see. Obviously, they've replaced it with some sort of metrics. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have access to so much information about pages and websites and user interaction. I think it was always something that people assumed that they would be using, and maybe they're just using it more heavily as time goes on because links are so easily gamed. They have to rely on things that aren't easily gamed. So that's your SEO learning corner for today. So if links are on their way out, at least for most of the experts and even kind of stuff that Matt Cutts has been suggesting, what would you then tell people to concentrate their SEO efforts, that's in air quotes again, with instead of maybe link building or what should they maybe be focusing on as well as for maybe the long term? I don't know that my recommendations change much for those people. I I think over the last couple of years, I've always sort of just said that you just need to pay attention to good content, good user experience, provide a website that people actually want to read and, and naturally link out to and share on the social networks with other people. That's not to say that I don't also do link building for some of the websites that I own or a few select companies, we do link building for them. But I think in general, it's just best to focus on creating a good user experience. And I know that that's kind of like 
the boring answer to that <laughs> because everyone wants a tip or a trick or a something I can do actively to make my SEO better. I don't think that's how SEO really works anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's just like everything else, making a website that converts well, that people want to use, and that's usable for people. One thing that often gets lost, maybe sometimes it gets technical, but also having a well-coded site mm-hmm. to where when search engines arrive on your site, they can understand what you have actually going on. So making sure that you use best coding practices, you have good locations for your heading tags, things like that. That also kind of helps with that experience. A lot of times with your users understanding what you do. But again, you have to remember that these aren't necessarily humans that are coming to your site and trying to understand this information. So make sure you're using best coding practices as well. Moving right along, we wanted to continue this conversation because we got some pretty good feedback on our discussion last week about the conversion checkout funnel and how we need to potentially rethink that if we're going to make people create accounts, things like that. So to really continue that conversation, we came across an interesting blog post on Copy Blogger where they walk through some of the more successful strategies on checkout and things to keep in mind. A few of them were probably worth discussing or, you know, just to consider as you're building a checkout funnel or one where you're requesting information for people, a lot of these principles hold true uh, for those experiences, regardless if you're actually selling a product or you're just trying to get someone's information. So one of the the interesting concepts that they explore, obviously, because it's copy blogger, but I think that a lot of people probably don't pay enough attention to it is really the verbiage around a lot of the things when you're starting to collect information, but also getting to kind of like the final decision point. And I think a couple of their examples might help people think about things slightly differently. So as a specific example, they have two images where they're trying to convey how shipping will work on this site. And in one side, they use just a truck with free shipping on it. And in the next one they use, we'll pay for your shipping. And I thought that that was like an interesting way. I don't notice many sites that actually take that verbiage to not only take what maybe a lot of sites and your competitors offer, twisting it into a way where it seems like you're giving more than just free shipping. When I read, we'll pay for your shipping, it does, for some reason, trigger something a little bit more differently from the emotional set that I thought was a a really good example for people to consider. So along with examples like that, they walk through how you need to maybe consider your verbiage around buttons, particularly around when you're starting to get people to make a decision point where they need to maybe create an account or register things. And in particular, they walk through use cases where some very large retailers saw quite a staggering gain and conversion by just changing some of their verbiage around from things like register to continue or de-emphasizing the amount that people need to create a new account and simplifying. I think that really is what it boils down to for a lot of these things is sometimes we get a little bit greedy with what we're trying to ask from people when they're trying to complete a task or we're just overthinking things in the in the sense of we can think through all these use cases or different ways that users are trying to access our site. And what ends up happening is in the effort to try to conquer all of those, we end up alienating a lot of people or overwhelming them with just too many decisions. Well, I think that's a good point. I think what a lot of, you know, online retailers tend to do is assume that their customers are willing to put up with more than they actually are. 
And that's, you know, for e-commerce, kind of different because it's mostly a standard practice. I mean, there are verbiage changes and ways we can we can flip things up and, and make them easier to use. You can see it with a lot of other websites that maybe sell services or recurring billing things or whatever it is, trying to ask for way too much mm-hmm. and making it way too complicated for people when it could be simplified greatly. Um, and it could lead to a massive increase in conversion because uh, simple verbiage changes like you were talking about sort of want to back up a little bit. I know you talked about the um, the shipping thing. I thought that was a great way to change up the verbiage, but I wonder if that's actually going to make much of a difference for conversion. I think it sounds cool. It sounds good in my mind. Sure. When I hear that, we'll pay for your shipping, it sounds a lot better to me, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that that's the kind of thing that's going to make a massive difference in conversion unless you get like a ton of traffic <laughs> right uh, but those other things like continue versus register to me that's a no-brainer that that's mm-hmm. that's got to increase click-through rates and conversions yeah i mean i think there's a lot of factors that come into play there like how competitive is your marketplace and, and a lot of different things where marketing messages like those might make that bit of difference mm-hmm. or who you're talking to as well or what kind of products you are actually selling. I think as an example of maybe not necessarily a change that you would do to increase conversion, but a change that you would make because it fits your brand personality, right. I guess, better. Uh, so it, it it's more in line with what maybe your brand would say about shipping costs is that, you know, we'll cover your shipping. And that sounds, and I don't, you don't need to have the yo, we'll cover your <laughs> shipping, but a lot of cool brands out there. And that would seem like it would fit in much better with their brand mm-hmm. identity. I mean, even someone like American Express who's yeah. known for really good customer service, mm-hmm. like those types of messages would really fit that brands. But going back to what you said on the simplification point, Expedia actually ran a very, I think, well-noted user study at this point where they took out the company field actually from one of their checkout forms. And when they ran the numbers for them, that represented an $8 million opportunity for their company. Just in simplifying, reducing one form field made that much difference in their bottom line. So there are things that you need to scrutinize in your processes and how much information you collect. And think about maybe more intelligent ways to still collect the same amount of information because it is helpful for us when we're marketing to people or just knowing about our customers. The more information that we have, sometimes the better. And some of that stuff can be valuable. Just think maybe of alternative ways where we can make that process a little bit more smooth. And I think we would see much higher conversion rates. One other point that I thought was mentionable because I see so many sites do this so terribly is make sure that you run your error handling through multiple usability studies. Many times when I'm using sites, I try not to make errors. I try to type accurately. I'm flawless, (laughs) so I never see errors. But in some instances, you know, I do come across sites where maybe I didn't enter something incorrectly or in the wrong field. And I don't know who designed or developed this process to communicate what I need to fix, but... I feel like I need to get like a decoder ring out of a Captain Crunch cereal box and go on a treasure hunt with Indiana Jones to kind of find what I actually need to fix and how do I need to go about doing that. So I would think that probably a lot of companies, a hidden gem for them could be maybe not even reassessing how much information they're trying to collect or, you know, optimizing buttons or even taking steps away, but optimizing your flow for people that actually make errors you might be surprised on how many people get frustrated and leave. We actually have that as a problem uh, with one of the websites that I run. And I was sort of the one in charge. I'm not sort of. I was the one in charge of developing all of that stuff, the mm-hmm. user interface and the front end um, look and feel of everything. 
And I felt, and everyone that I showed the user errors to felt that it was pretty straightforward. It seemed, it makes sense. But I think that maybe it was because I was showing it to a lot of younger audience people sure. who were familiar with the, that the sort of way of showing air fields. Mm -hmm. We were getting a lot of feedback from customers who were very frustrated with, it won't let me submit the form and it won't tell me why, right. which it's impossible for it for that to be the case. They, it was showing the errors. They just weren't, they didn't know where to look Pick for them, up, yeah. right? And they weren't able to interpret them properly. So mm -hmm. definitely something to really pay attention to. Yeah, there, there are some pretty good tools out there to maybe check out I know Clicktail has come a long way from where it was in its infancy. Uh, they can record user sessions and you can put tags on there for people that get errors. So you can kind of watch and see what happens when they trigger errors and what they might be doing. Uh, if you're more of an enterprise level, Tea Leaf might be worth checking out. They have a lot of user replay and error detecting technologies out there that can really help you. But focus on your errors and I think that you might find a uh, hidden gem in conversion. So let's go ahead and move on to our favorite segment, our Google Corner. Two things to talk about tonight. First, Google results page overhaul. We've been seeing some hints of a new results page coming in. I know that you've been noticing it quite a few. I've noticed it twice now, I believe, coming in. And we'll actually tweet out some pictures of the differences between the two. But just simply, the new results page, at least that, that we've seen and, and quite a few people out there on the net, has been one that's a little bit bolder, bigger text. They've dropped underlining the links and some of their results. Overall, just bigger, bolder, and brighter with mm -hmm. less underlying and maybe some of the distractions of the old designs. I wanted to get your feedback on what you thought about the design when you were exposed to it uh, and what you think any implications, if, if there are any. I have seen it a few times over the last few weeks. Every time I saw it, though, I thought there was some sort of error on Google, like a style sheet wasn't attached properly or something, because I would only see it once. I wouldn't right. see it in subsequent views of you know similar search result pages. Obviously, they test the hell out of that stuff, and I'm sure it's performing better by whatever metric they're trying to use. My initial reaction, though, is that it doesn't look right, obviously, because <laughs> I'm used to the way that Google used to look. But and things, I would say you're probably a power user as well. You use right. Google quite a bit. Yeah, things are definitely bigger, and there's a lot more white space. If, for me, it's a little bit harder to read all the listings. That's my initial impression from everything. It seems like some of the ease with which I can just scan through results has been removed a little bit, but I've only seen glimpses of it, so we'll see what happens when they actually roll the thing out for everybody. We haven't actually heard anything official, but there is an article on Search Engine Land about it, uh, and I'll actually have some images that we can show you guys. But it is interesting. Like you said, I think it's a little bit harder to scan, but I'm sure they're doing a lot of testing too. I mean, they have a huge population mm -hmm. that they can test on. So the last thing that we're going to touch on was going to be Think with Google. So I would encourage anyone that's really in the marketing space to check it out. Just thinkwithgoogle.com. Uh, it's a great resource for a lot of the case studies that Google publishes, and it might surprise you actually how much research they team up with companies with uh, and publish out for free. But not only that, they have a ton of great data, a lot of slick charts. And if you're trying to pitch an idea internally, it can be a great resource with a lot of data to actually back that up and really help you convey what should be maybe necessarily the case that you're having a tough time convincing some internal parties with, or maybe a client that you're working with, and they seem a little bit skeptical. I think what Google can really help you 
get some data behind that. But also, like I said, they have some really sexy graphs and yeah. and things that can really help your presentations. Well, pop. it's not yeah, it's not too different than what I mean. There's other companies that do that, but yeah. the thing with Google, obviously, it's it's free mm-hmm. um, and it's it's really high quality stuff. You don't have to pay hundreds of dollars for these benchmark reports and all this other stuff. Uh, it's just all out there for free. So right. yeah, definitely take a look at it. So first of all, thanks for being with us. That is going to be episode fifty. We appreciate Gia. all your time, all your reviews all the people sharing about us, give us a call, 904-270-9603. Have a topic for us to talk about. Maybe you've been stressing about something, the boss is yelling at you, you just don't know really where to turn. Give us a call. And if we can't help you out, we certainly can put you into contact with someone that can. Be sure to check out our site. We have a lot of video content coming out now as well. That's been getting some good responses. Give us an idea for our next video segment as well. That'd be greatly appreciated. You might even be featured on it. But until next time, this has been Rob and Corey, and we'll see you next time.